Well, good morning, GCC. It's good to be with you this morning, and thank you for joining us via live stream. And thank you to all our volunteers who are here this morning to lead us in worship and in other areas as well. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And let me begin by saying that, uh, you know, as I, as I try to read the rules and regulations, I think it is clear that at times it can be confusing. Uh, sometimes we don't even know what we're supposed to do. Uh, but here's the good news, and here's where I have my joy, is that God is never confused. The Lord is never confused. And he is God, and he's always on his throne, and this is our hope. So we do not lose our joy. Let us read together Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, after only 10 weeks, we have finally reached verse 6. It only took six weeks. I mean, I'm sorry, 10 weeks, actually. And uh, what I want to do this morning as we begin is I want to remind you of uh, four crucial aspects of our study on the issue of Christian unity. And the first one is this. Um, the first half of chapter 4 of Ephesians it's all about unity. That is the main subject that the Apostle Paul is addressing in the first 16 verses of chapter 4. The second thing that I want to remind you of is this. For the Apostle Paul, Christian unity in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not based on feelings or emotions, but always and only upon truth. We must remember this cru crucial truth. Um, I believe that today, more than ever, we need to remind ourselves of this particular teaching, of this particular truth, that Christian unity, it is not based on feelings or emotions, but always on truth. I don't know of a more urgent teaching than this. It is imperative that we understand this. It saddens my heart when I see Christians quickly deserting the truth of Scripture to go with their emotions about anything. And many are beginning to abandon the objective rock of biblical truth and are wandering off into the subjective sea of human emotionalism. We should never do that. We should never live our Christian life based on emotionalism and feelings which come and go. We should build our lives and our Christian unity based on truth and truth alone. We are living in very dangerous times. We are living in very dangerous times. And Christian, let me say this to you. You must know that the world hates the truth. The world hates the truth. Satan hates the truth. And you need to mark my words. If you or I or any Christian, if we allow our biblical foundations to be broken, our biblical foundations to be broken, you will lose the gospel and you will eventually walk away from the faith. So that's bad news. But if we are going to remain united, 
We must hold fast to the truth. The third thing that I want to remind you of this morning is this. A very important principle. Unity in the church is not created by us, but only maintained by us. Remember, that is a critical principle. We do not manufacture unity. We do not invent unity. We are not the ones who create unity. We simply keep the unity already given to us by the Spirit in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we already live within the realm, within the reality of unity. We simply need to learn how to keep it. And we do that, as we saw several weeks ago, in all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Important thing to remember. And the fourth general aspect of Christian unity that we need to keep in mind is this. Christian unity is sustained by seven pillars, seven pillars of truth. And we have considered six of them so far, right? We are united in one body. We are united in one spirit. We are united in one hope. We are united in one Lord. We are united in one faith. We are united in one baptism. And today we have reached the seventh and final pillar of Christian unity. Namely, the one that we read about in verse 6. The one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This morning, then, we are doing an exercise in lofty thinking. In other words, your thoughts cannot ascend any higher than this. For we are thinking about the one who is greater than all beings, the one whose judgments are unsearchable and whose ways are inscrutable, the one who has no need of a counselor and the one who owes no one anything. This morning, we're thinking about the one from whom, through whom, and for whom are all things. So we're lifting our thoughts and our affection this morning toward the one to whom all glory belongs forever and ever, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the question for us this morning as we consider this final pillar of Christian unity? Well, it's the same question that we have been asking all these seven weeks. What is that question? Here it is. What does the one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, what does he have to do with Christian unity? If the main subject of these verses is Christian unity, then each one of these pillars have to do with our unity. We can't study these verses without asking that question. Paul is making the point that all these seven ones are pillars of unity. Therefore, each one sustains our unity. So our task is to ask and answer the question, how? How? So I will seek to answer that question by giving you four ways in which our one God and Father sustains our unity and why it is important to keep this in mind and to remember these things. But before we get into any of that, let me ask you an important question. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. Consider verse 6. It says, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Which word is repeated the most in verse 6? All. I heard you. That's good. The word 
all. This little word is repeated four times. Therefore, we know it is a very important word. It is a key word. If you misunderstand the word all, you will misunderstand the verse. You will misunderstand the chapter and you will misunderstand the whole book. It is important that we get the meaning of the word all. What does the word all mean? Does the word all really mean all, all the time and in all places? As always, what, what do we have to do here? Well, we have to look at the context. We have to let the context determine the meaning of the word. What does the context reveal about the word all? Well, the context reveals, and it's very clear by now, that Paul is talking not about the whole world. Who is he talking about? What is he talking about? He's talking only about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the context. So, for instance, in chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Well, he's talking then to the called out ones. What is called out? That is the word ecclesia, right? That is the word for church. That's what church means, the called out ones. He's not talking to the whole world, right? Believers only, Christians, members of the body of Christ. Later on, the apostle Paul will speak about how we need to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Well, believers only. Christians only, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You see then the context revealed that this is about the church, not about the whole world. Therefore, the word all in verse six is a reference to all believers, all Christians, all members of the body of Christ who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the word all means. But maybe you are in your mind, you're thinking about an objection, Maybe you're thinking, but isn't God over all peoples everywhere? Isn't God over everyone? Yes, in terms of his dominion and his rule. But the point of verse six is to show God's unique relationship to his church, to his people. So we need to narrow this only to those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't define the word all that way, guess what? Everything else in this chapter loses its meaning. Everything else loses its meaning. So we have defined then what the word all means. It means all Christians. You guys are quiet this morning. I think I know why. Okay. So let me address the first point there. The first thing that I want to mention this morning, the first way in which the father brings unity and you have there in your notes to follow along. Since there is one God and father of all, number one, we stand united in our adoption as sons and daughters. Interesting how God's fatherhood of his church is a truth that unites Christians. God is the father of all who have believed in the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not the father of all without exception. He is the father only of those who have placed their faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
It is only in and through Christ that we can receive adoption as sons of God. Paul said this very clearly in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 5. It says that God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. There is no adoption. There is no sonship to God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The same idea is repeated by the same apostle in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, where we find the apostle Paul saying these words. When the fullness of time had come, God sent for his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see what's going on here? You see the pattern? No one is born a son or a daughter of God. We only become a son or a daughter of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Adoption as God's children is not a right that we are born with, but a gift received by faith in the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might be objecting to this truth because it sounds a little harsh. How can God not be the father of everyone? If that's you, I want to prove this point, And I want to make this point very strongly by appealing to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, I, you don't need to turn here, but in John chapter eight, the Lord Jesus is having a conversation with a group of Jewish people, Jewish leaders who claimed that their father was Abraham and that their father was God. Listen to what Jesus said to them. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Listen to verse 44 of John 8. You are of your father, the devil. I didn't say it. The Lord Jesus said it. You are of your father, the devil. Let me be clear on this. There is a distinction between human beings and a very sharp distinction, in fact, between people. Some are sons and daughters of God and some are sons and daughters of the devil. But one thing is clear. You cannot be both. You cannot be both. You are either a son of God or you are a son of the devil. And this, my friends, listen to this. It's important. This, my friends, is what the world consists of. We need to be clear on this and remind ourselves of this truth. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten this is what the world is made up of, sons of God or sons of the devil. Listen, this is the only distinction between people that actually matters. This is the only distinction that actually matters. There are only friends of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or enemies of God through unbelief. That's all there is. That's all there is. And those who are outside of the body of Christ because of their unbelief are in the bonds of Satan and they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I have to say that I'm sad because it seems like many within the church at large are beginning to forget that this is the only distinction that actually matters. Have we forgotten 
that a man or a woman who dies in Christ enters into eternal joy and into the presence of God as a son or a daughter of God, regardless of the color of their skin, riches, education, etc. And have we forgotten that a man or a woman who dies without Christ will receive divine justice eternally as an enemy of God, regardless of their color of their skin, regardless of their riches, regardless of their education. Have we forgotten that the poor and the rich alike, the black and the white alike, the educated and the uneducated alike are all under the wrath of God and headed for destruction until they hear and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes and saves them because apart from the Lord, everyone from every nation, every language and every tongue remains an enemy of God. I do not care whether you're black, white, rich, or poor. I hope that we as a church of Jesus Christ never forget this truth. If you are a human being, you are either a son or a daughter of God, or you are an enemy of God, depending on what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. But you cannot be both. Obviously, then, this means that the only thing that brings unity between you and I, those of us who, who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have believed in him, is that we have been adopted by God. Through Jesus, period. That's it. You can have a lot or you can have very little. You can be highly educated or not very much. You can be an entrepreneur who owns a company, an athlete, an, an engineer. You can clean houses. You can be in the landscaping business. You can be a CEO. You can be a janitor. You can be a pilot. You can be a doctor. You can be a builder, an electrician. Maybe you were born in Mexico. Where maybe you were born in the U.S., maybe in Chile, maybe in Africa. And here's something that I want to emphasize and be clear on. Our differences can be a beautiful thing. Diversity can be a beautiful thing. There's much variety in the body of Christ because God saves people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. We should not forget this, but there's only one God and father of all in all this variety, in all this diversity. We must remember that we are first and foremost children of God adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. Herein lies our unity we live to know and worship our father. What is the immediate implication? If you're following the notes, here's the, the first implication. Divisions can be the direct result of idolatry. Divisions can be the direct result of idolatry. Make no mistake about this. When we lose sight of our identity as children of God, first and foremost, divisions will ensue. Why? Because the moment you lose sight of who you are in Christ, namely a child of God through faith in Jesus, you will begin looking for identity somewhere else. You will begin to look for your identity somewhere else. What are some of the things that we can idolize? What are some of the things that we can idolize? Well, the list could be endless. We can idolize ourselves. You can see that when, pe when a person has this insatiable desire to always be right, always make sure that his or her, her opinion prevails above everyone else. They're always promoting one single agenda, their own personal opinions and preferences. We can idolize other people. That can be a husband, a wife, a, a children, a political figure, a pastor, a public thinker, an author, etc. 
We can even idolize popular opinions and popular ideologies. By that, I mean that we can latch on to ideas that are popular in the culture and embrace them to the degree that we begin to think that our very identity is wrapped up in these things. We can idolize a nationality. So many things. How do we identify idols? Well, we can ask very simple questions. Listen to this one. Is there anything in your life that might be preventing you from enjoying fellowship with other children of God? Maybe there is something in your mind that you're always rehearsing that is keeping you from being in fellowship or at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's a follow-up question to that first question. Do you believe that there is something more important or relevant to our fellowship than our adoption as children of God through faith in Jesus Christ? Is there anything more important? Is there anything more relevant? Maybe you're always, you're beginning to think that our common adoption as children of God through Jesus Christ is just not enough for us to have peace and fellowship. We need to add a few things that are missing. There are certain elements missing for our fellowship to be genuine and peaceful and true. Listen to this. The truth of our adoption as sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ is of such magnitude and of such infinite value that if there is anything in your life that is causing you to diminish its importance for unity and fellowship, you must root it out. In other words, if you are believing anything, thinking anything, or doing anything that is leading you to devalue your adoption as a child of God through Jesus as sufficient for peace and unity within the church, then you must be quick to identify what that is and cut it out. There is no greater unity forming and peace keeping truth than this through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is now our father. There's no greater truth. And if you think we need to add more to that, you're losing sight of the centrality of the gospel and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's anything in your life whatsoever that is trying to convince you that this is not enough for us to have peace and genuine fellowship, we have a problem. We have a deep, deep problem and you have to deal with it in your own life. Now, as we move along, I want you to notice something about verse six that will lead me into my next uh, two or three points. Please consider the three prepositions in the second half of verse six. What does it say? God is over all. God is through all and God is in all. Have I mentioned in the past that prepositions matter? They do matter. In fact, I want you to realize that these three prepositions are massively important for Christian unity. Massively important for Christian unity. Since there is one God and Father over all, this is point number two. Since there is one God and Father over all, notice that preposition. Number two, we stand united in our submission to God's absolute authority. We stand united in our submission to God's absolute authority. God's supremacy over his church is a truth that unites Christians. God is so supreme, so high above all things, 
that when he makes a promise, he swears by his own name because there is no one higher than him. God is so supreme, so high above all things, that everything created depends on him, yet he depends on no one and nothing. God the Father is so supreme, so high above all things, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, we read that the head of the wife is the husband, the head of the church is Christ, and the head of Christ is God the Father. Even though Jesus is in no way inferior to the Father in his essence, he willingly humbled himself to the will of the Father. And God the Father is so supreme, so high above all things, that according to 1 Corinthians 15, when the end comes, after Jesus destroys every rule and every authority and every power, Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father, and God the Father will be all in all. One day, every false teacher, every false ideology, every false philosophy, every force of evil, every empire, and every kingdom, and every exalted nation, everything will be done away with. And the only one who will remain standing will be the Lord Jesus Christ as he hands over the kingdom to his Father, who is supreme above all things. You know what this means in practical terms? You want to know what it means for here and now? In your life, there is no greater authority than God himself. There is no greater authority. What are the implications for unity? In your notes, divisions occur when we forget God's authority to rule over us by his word. I have said this before, but I must repeat it now. Ultimately, if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, there is only one question that concerns you and that must consume your life. Does anybody remember what the question is? I said this like five weeks ago, so I doubt it. But here it is again. There's only one question that concerns you and that should consume your life until the day you die. What has God said? That's it. This is the question that rules your entire life. What has God said about what? About everything, <laughs> about everything. Since God, the father is over, over all believers, then you are always under authority. You're always under authority. Even if you are the CEO of your own company, guess what? You are under the authority of God at all times, every day, for every thought, every attitude, and everything you do, he is your authority. And God's authority is communicated to us in his infallible, inerrant, powerful, inspired, and sufficient word. This further means that you should never seek to become an independent thinker. Your thoughts, your attitudes... And your life are now all under the supremacy and the authority of God. And God rules our lives by his word. Christians who forget this truth are opening the door to their own destruction. Because if you stop listening to God, you will listen to somebody else. You will listen to somebody else. We must remain united in our submission to God's absolute authority over us 
through his word. It is different when I have a, a disagreement with someone who wants to submit to this word and we are interpreting passages differently than when someone says, I don't care about what this book says. It's a different type of disagreement and it is a different type of communication. We need to, as, as the people of God, this is our authority. We, we are submitted to this, nothing else. The world does not have this unity because the world does not desire to submit to God's word. This is why the world is in utter chaos. The world is known for its rejection of God's prerogative to rule through his written word. What you're seeing in the world today and all the confusion and confusion and the chaos is people utterly blinded by what Paul described in chapter four, verse 14 of Ephesians. Waves, winds of doctrine, human cunning, deceitful schemes. Listen, these ideas are going to be around forever. They're never going to go away. They're never going to go away. You know why? Because Satan doesn't take a break from his mission to destroy, to confuse, and to create hostility among people. So let me ask you a question. What are some of the waves? What are some of the winds of doctrine? What are some of the deceitful schemes that you are seeing today? Can you identify how Satan is trying to confuse people? Can you discern any of the messages that are going around today through the media, Facebook, whatever else that are trying to bring confusion and destruction and disunity among people? Can you identify some of those? Can you see them? What are they? How about this one, for example? Homosexuality and transgenderism are normal. Are normal. Isn't it true that uh, for many of us, we're beginning to see homosexuality and transgenderism and any kind of sexual immorality almost as normal? The normalcy of immorality. What about this one? Abortion is a woman's right. She can kill a baby. How about this one? The value and identity of a person is determined by skin color. How about this one? Gender is fluid, not fixed. You can be whatever you want, whatever you feel like on any given day. You know what these are? These are deceitful schemes, schemes, winds of doctrine, and they are destructive. As Christians, we only submit to God's voice as revealed in scripture. I want to give you a quote from a well-known theologian of the 19th century, J.C. Ryle. It is kind of extensive, but it's important that we listen to it. It's, it's very relevant for us today. And I quote, you live in a world where your soul is in constant danger. Enemies are around you on every side. Your own heart is deceitful. Bad examples are numerous. Satan is always laboring to lead you astray. Above all, false doctrines and false teachers of every kind abound. This is your great danger. To be safe, you must be well armed. You must provide yourself with the weapons which God has given you for your help. You must store your mind with holy scripture. This is to be well armed. Arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written word of God. Read your Bible regularly. Become familiar with your Bible. 
Neglect your Bible and nothing that I know can prevent you from error. If a plausible advocate of false teaching shall happen to meet you, make it a rule to believe nothing except it can be proved from scripture. The Bible alone is infallible. Do you really use your Bible as much as you ought? And then JC Riley continues and says, there are many today who believe the Bible yet read it very little. Does your conscience tell you, tell you that you are one of those persons? If so, you are the man that is likely to get little help from the Bible in time of need. If so, you are the man that is unlikely to become established in the truth. If so, you are the man who is likely to make mistakes in life. And if so, you are the man who is likely to be carried away by some false teacher for a time. It will not surprise me if I hear that one of these clever, eloquent men can make a convincing presentation and he is leading you into error. You are in need of truth. No wonder if you are tossed to and fro like a cork on the waves. All these are uncomfortable situations. I want you to escape them all. Take the advice I offer you today. Do not merely read your Bible a little, but read it a great deal. Remember your many enemies and be armed. End quote. That is J.C. Ryle, 19th century, telling us the truth. There's only one book. There's only one voice. There's only one message that is actually authoritative over your life. There is no podcast. There is no blog. There is no comment that has the authority over your life. Like the word of God. There's only one, the book, the the Bible. It is not the voice of popular opinion. It is not the voice of a family member or friend. It is not the voice of some well-known politician. The only voice that has the ability and the prerogative to tell you what to think and how to live and what to do is the word of God. Now, some voices can help us in the process of learning what the word says, but no other voice can tell you absolute conscience binding truth. Number three, and we'll get through these fairly quickly. Since there is one God and father through all, pay attention to that preposition through all. Number three, we stand united in our trust in God's good plans. God's providential care for his church is a truth that unites Christians. What is God's providence? The Heidelberg catechism defines providence like this as the almighty and ever present power of God by which he upholds as with his hands, heaven and earth and all creatures. And so rules them that all things in fact come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. This is God's providence. Can you think of a more comforting statement? That God actually upholds all things with his hands. Therefore, all things come to us never by chance, but only from his fatherly hands. Why is this important for Christian unity? Well, we're seeing it today, right? 
Here's the implication for Christian unity in your notes. Divisions can take place when we forget that God causes all things for our good. Isn't that true? Divisions can take place when we forget that God causes all things for our good. Do you see the connection here? When we, as the people of God, stop seeing the hand of God working all things together for our good, it is then that anxiety, worry, and fear begin to creep in. And these things cause divisions among us. Why? Because anxiety, worry, and fear have a way of placing the focus on the wrong thing. Here's an example. Let's see if you know what I'm talking about. COVID-19. Have you heard of that? COVID-19. What has COVID-19 done? Well, in some cases, it has infused fear and anxiety. In other cases, it has infused impatience and irritability. Any of this can bring division. However, the doctrine of the father's providential care for his church, the fact that he's working through it all for our good should bring unity because we can be at peace at all times. We can be at peace at all times because God is through all. COVID-19 is not outside of God's providential plan for his church. Do we know everything that he's doing? Do we know every single detail? No, but we know this. He's always sanctifying his church. He's always accomplishing something and it is always something good for us. It is always to our benefits. Yes, even in times when we can't meet together. I miss you. I wish you were here, but we can't. God is always doing something good. God is always doing something good. If God cares providentially for the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, how much more will he care for us, his church? And number four, since there is one God and Father in all, in all, number four, we stand united in our pursuit of greater fullness of God. Greater fullness of God. God's abiding presence in his church is a truth that unites Christians. Let me give you the immediate implication here for divisions. Divisions can arise when we seek to be filled with something other than the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the fruit of the Spirit? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is God in you? Is God in us? As you seek to navigate these turbulent waters of life in a fallen world, are you seeing these virtues in you? When you disagree with someone, do you do so with patience? When you are contradicted by someone, do you receive it with self-control? 
And when you are under difficult circumstances in your life, do you keep your peace? When you are offended by a brother or a sister, do you handle it with gentleness? God is in all. Therefore, we should see more of God in all of us. If you and I are going to be committed to anything, let us be committed to this, that we will grow in our desire to see greater manifestations of the fruit of the spirit in our lives. Let this be our commitment. And in this, we must stand united. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, which is the pillar of truth. We thank you, Father, that we don't have to be in this world confused, that we don't have to walk in this world in darkness, but that we have been given the light of your word. And Father, we, we acknowledge, we admit that we don't have all the answers for all the questions. And our understanding is limited. Yet we also know that you have given us not only your word, your written word, but you have given us the helper, the Holy Spirit. And Father, as we commit ourselves to live in this world, according to your word, we Ask, Lord, for the help of your spirit. Help us to understand, Father. Give us wisdom as we study your word and as we minister to people around us. Help us to be salt and light and not to be confused by dangerous ideas and ideologies, but always to stand upon your word. Thank you for our adoption as sons and daughters through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May this be the center of of our unity. In all these things, we pray in the precious and powerful name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.